Awesome. Uh, we are in uh, in First Samuel, still. I'll be saying that for a while, especially if we do both books. So we're in, we're in chapter eight. As you're turning there, if you have kids downstairs, um, the teachers have asked you to remember to bring their hats. It's getting hot. All right. So hot and uh, yeah, hat and a water bottle. Amen. Awesome. Let's look here. Chapter. We'll look at just chapter eight. John did a great job the other week of covering the uh, what four chapters before, right? Three. Man. I don't. I can't do that. I looked at it. It's a lot of reading. I don't want to have to make Michelle get up here and read all that. She is good at reading, though. Uh, chapter eight is kind of a transitionary chapter. Uh, the main characters, as you probably know if you've ever read the Bible, uh, in the book of Samuel is obviously you know Eli, who we talked about a, a bit. Um, but then Samuel is a very central figure, and then you have Saul and David. Uh, and Samuel's going to serve as a bridge into Saul. Uh, and this chapter is kind of the transition into that, into Saul being introduced. Uh, and so we'll, we'll dig into the character of Saul in the coming weeks, uh, which will be very confronting. It's a pretty flawed character. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that. But today we'll look at the transitionary period here uh, as Israel asked for a king. So let's read here together, starting here in verse 1. We'll read the whole uh, whole chapter. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will sign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and, take and give them to his attendants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. All right, great, great passage here. Let's have a prayer and then we'll dig into it, uh, dig into it together. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, you know, we thank you. We thank you that we can come together to remember you, to, to sing to you, to, to recenter our hearts and our minds on you and you alone, God. We pray you help us, God, to, to, to look here at this text, Father, and to understand, you know, obviously just the depth of your love and how patient you are with us, God. And Father, we pray you help us to, to be a people that never turn from you, God, that never long to, to be just like the world, God, but are content to be your children, your people, Father. Help us in this, God. We pray that, that today you can open up the eyes of our hearts. God, help us to see ourselves with sobriety. Help us to see ourselves and our hearts and where we're at in our relationship with you, God, with great clarity, Father, so that we can learn to cling to you and to hold to you as we should. Can we thank you and we praise you. Ask Christ's name. Amen. All right. It is, a, you know, it is a little bit of an ominous, right? Uh, even I love how it ends the chapter. When Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Doesn't even tell him he agrees with them, right? It's just like, everyone go home. You're going to see what's coming for you, right? Uh, and they do, right? But it, it, it's a sad moment, really. I mean, listen, you know, there in, in, in 7 and 8, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king, and they have, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. You know, I love the, the use there in, in verse 8 of forsake. Such a powerful word, right? It's not purely a rejection, though rejection is used before, right? But forsaken adds an element to rejection. Forsaken adds this element of there should be a natural affection to remain connected. There should be a bond of love that you know, continues our relationship, but you're rejecting it. So it's not just purely rejection. It's rejection on, in, in the face of what should be Natural and easy affection, love. Right? It's a language of a relationship. Right? Uh, some of you, this is shocking to think, right? but some of you maybe have never seen Seinfeld. I know, I know, and it's true, it's tragic. I showed it to Jack, that's why he wasn't advancing the slides. Uh, and he was like, what's that? Right? But there's a funny Seinfeld episode where this guy, George, who's a funny you know, character, he's getting dumped. Uh, in a relationship, kind of like God is being dumped here by Israel. And he says, don't tell me it's not you, it's me. I invented it's not you, it's me. Which is a con you know, common, if you've ever broken up with someone, or maybe you've been broken up with, you maybe have received that, that very vicious line, it's not you, it's me. George thinks he's the origin of it. I would actually say God is using it here in this text. Right? I mean, he tells Samuel, okay, so it's not exactly the same, but he's telling Samuel, look, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. Right? Same language, right? Maybe you get that, maybe you don't. Right? But this is the scene, not George and them, right? But it is a scene of a breakup. It is a relationship to, you know, being, being torn. It is, you know, God sees it that way. It's a request God knew would come. You can read Deuteronomy 17, and God knows this is going to come. Uh, the language is exactly the same that is used in Deuteronomy 17. When you come into the land, uh, and you come to me, and you say, hey, give us a king, just like all the other nations, which is verbatim what the Israelites say to Samuel. God knew this day would come, all right? But nonetheless, it still hurts. You know, as God's people turn, turn against God. Right? And you think, why? why? Why did they do it? What were the factors that motivated them to turn? 
I mean, John covered the previous chapters, right? I mean, God was doing some pretty cool things despite Israel being pretty messed up. Despite their unfaithfulness, God was still working. But nonetheless, they turn on God. And, and so we'll look at that. We'll look at you know, three things here that are in this text that contribute to them turning on God. Because by extension, we're, we're, we're tempted with the very same thing. Right? This is not the first time Israel has forsaken God. And if you read any of the prophets in the Old Testament, it's not the last time they forsake God. Right? They are constantly turning away from God, severing that relationship and going after other things. Right? And the same can happen with us. Right? But the factors, uh, you know, knowing what they are, knowing the danger areas, right, can, can help us to keep our hearts centered on God. And then we'll close out by looking at you know, why it's folly to turn away from God. Uh, yes, Israel does it. Uh, and yes, God knew Israel was going to do it. And yes, God is going to work through their desires, uh, even as he gives them over to desires that are sinful, to bring about his plan. Right? So yes, God's sovereign. He's in complete control of everything here. But, but still, we've got to see, man, it, it's folly. It really is foolish to turn, turn away from the living God. Amen? So let's look at those three things, and we'll close out with the, the positive one, right? Uh, first is, you know, fear and failure. It's an interesting, it's an interesting greeting, uh, verse 5. They come to Samuel, you're old. <laughs> I had someone say that to me the other day, right? Uh, as I had, we had lunch on Jono's birthday. We had lunch with Jono and Pam, uh, and, and our kids were there, and it dawned on me that Jono is closer in age to Allie than he is to me. <laughs> and that thought of... Samuel, you're old, right? Kind of, kind of hit me, right? Uh, but, but the people, the elders, right? They're, 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 they're nervous, right? They, they had a rough time being led by Eli. Things have improved under Samuel, uh, but they're not dumb. They see Samuel was old, and they come and they, they remind him of that, which is not a very nice thing to do, right? Uh, and they also tell him, look, your, your sons don't follow your ways. So there's two things that are, that are bubbling around inside their, 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 their heart that are producing fear, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and there's an element here, which is a very sobering one, even for the fathers, as we looked at, at Eli, it was scary to see Eli with his sons, right? That was a scary sermon. Right? Anyone who has a kid, you, you can't read the story of Eli and not think, oh gosh, please no, right? But here, oh, Trevor, Right? <laughs> right? But even, even Samuel struggles with the same thing. Which is even interesting, you know, if you look at the whole Old Testament, right? Not all the prophets are, are outlined as being married and of having kids, but three out of the four that are, their kids are rebellious and don't follow God. And so that tells us, that's a sobering reminder of the challenge of the task. Right? And even Samuel, who in many ways does not seem to be held responsible, and there's a variety of reasons, and you can chat to me afterwards if you want to get into all those reasons, because they're kind of beyond our point right here. Right? But, but Samuel doesn't seem to be held accountable as Eli was. Right? But nonetheless, it's a sad thing. Right? And so these people, they, they have fear as the future is uncertain, and they see perhaps the failure of Samuel, which then contributes even more to their fear, uh, you know, and, and what happens a lot of time when fear, and especially fear of failure, fills our hearts, is the very same thing that happens to them. It's a very interesting interchange between Samuel and God, right? Samuel's, you know, he's displeased by it, uh, and what does he do? He goes and 
gossips to all of his friends, right? No, no, he goes and prays, which is the right thing to do, right? He doesn't go and trash other people. He goes and prays. Here's what the people want, God. Man, it hurts. And he prays. And God says, listen to them. But as you listen to them, also remind them of what's going to happen. And in the middle of this chapter, verses 10 all the way down to 18, is a very sobering picture of what life under a king is going to be for Israel. And none of it is positive. And yet it says there, verse 19, but the people refuse to listen. Ah, we want a king, right? They came to Samuel with their minds made up, which is a good side point, right? That's not asking advice. They don't come to Samuel with fear in their hearts and say, hey, I'm not sure what to do here. They don't come to Samuel of, hey, what's God's direction in this situation? They come with their minds already made up, and it doesn't matter what they're going to be told. They're not going to change their mind. It's a dangerous posture. But a lot of times, that's, that's the posture when fear fills our hearts. All right? And fear is a funny thing, right? Because you think about, not that picture, I shouldn't have clicked, right? Uh, but it's, you, know, you know what that picture, it's a picture of the first use of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. A German guy, right? I think in 1512, right? He wrote a little book called, <laughs> it's a good title book, An Appeal to Fools. Uh, I tried. I don't. I couldn't find it. I tried to find it. No one printed it, right? But interesting book. But he's the he's the guy who who is you know came up with the phrase "Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater." And George is thinking, what does that mean? Right? It means look, there there <laughs> there's something good, and that's the baby, right? And there's something bad, and that's the nasty bathwater, right? You, you don't throw them both out. You got to learn to keep the good and get rid of the bad. But fear and failure often causes us to do that. Right? This is Israel, right? I mean, again, like I said, 10 to 18 is flat bad news. Right? Bad news for their future direction choice, but they're resolutely stuck in it because they've had a bad experience. Samuel's now old. His sons are not following, just like Eli. And so let's throw out this whole system of judges and let's become like the world with a king over us. They're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And fear makes us do that at times. Right? I hear people all the time say that. Right? Fear causes us to make overreactions that are incorrect. Right? Michelle and us, you know, me and Michelle and our kids and the Percy's and the Chong's went up to Ningaloo on, uh, for holiday during school holidays. Never been, highly recommend it. Long drive, but well worth it. Right? Michelle and I were out snorkeling one day, and we saw a, an octopus, which is kind of cool, right, swimming around, uh, you know, one of the ones that, like, changes colors, right? And, of course, I wanted to touch it, you know, because, I don't know, it's, I, see, I see Sam do that when he sees sharks, and he still has, he, you know, he's still alive. He is a kiwi. He's way tougher, you know, but, but Michelle felt a little bit of fear of it, and all of a sudden, I found myself being shoved down at the octopus a lot faster than I wanted to go down and see the octopus, and I thought, man, there must be something else that Michelle's trying to protect me from. <laughs> right? Maybe there's a shark and she's pushing me out of the way and she's going to, you know. No, she was pushing me at the octopus out of fear. And fear does that sometimes, right? It makes us irrational, right? And Mia had the same response every time we saw a shark, right? But, but that's what fear does, right? It, it, it clouds our vision and it hinders us from seeing things with clarity and making the right choice. 
And sometimes that happens with us spiritually, right? You meet people, you know, you meet non-Christians at times, right? That they say, you know, they'll make the statement, all Christians are hypocrites because they knew one Christian that was a hypocrite. So they have one experience, and so they're going to throw out everything else as a byproduct of that, right? Uh, you know, other examples, um, you know, I mean, even with this one, there's an element of, of there are failures in Samuel and Eli in regards to leadership, so let's throw out leadership. I've heard people, you know, among us, you know, talk about the idea of discipling, someone speaking truth into your life, and they have a bad experience with that, so let me chuck out that whole practice. Right? But again, that's a fearful, it's a fearful choice. And you see people at times even walk away from God, forsake God as the Israelites are doing, because events unfold in their life not as they wanted them to, not as they thought God would do. And so they come to a conclusion God doesn't care, and so they walk away from God. That's what fear does. So sometimes fear and failure causes us to forsake God, just as the Israelites do. Right? And we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful of those moments. Because right? fear and failure are not great motivators for making drastic changes. The second thing is fairly obvious in our text. Over and over, they, they state they want to be like the other nations. Right? Verse 5, verse 20, they want to be like the world. They see the world's systems of governances, and they want that. Right? And as I said before, you know, God knew they would do that. I mean, Deuteronomy 17, 14, when you enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. God knew this was going to happen. God knew that as his people came out of slavery and were given, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey, the good life, that they would slowly, as Franz was warning us, you know, and we'll talk about it even more, forget about God. Right? And then want to become more and more like the world. Right? And for the Israelites, that's, that's, that's what they're stuck in. Right? Following the world rather than following God. You know, and this is... Man, if it was challenging for them, how much more so us? I mean, the world the, around them, I mean, the Philistines, the, the other Canaanite uh, people, I mean, it, life wasn't as good as we have it. Right? Nowhere near as good. Nowhere near as alluring as the world is today. And so many times the Bible warns us against this. We've got to be careful. We're not meant to be like the world. First right? John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. That's a hard verse. That's a hard sentence. Don't love the world or anything in the world. Right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Same as what God says. You can't love God and mammon. You can't love God and possessions. Right? It's either one or the other. There's not room in your heart for two great loves. It's warning that, hey, the vast majority of the Old Testament is Israel failing in this area. Some of the sober warnings in the New Testament is of Christ warning Christians, hey, don't fall into this area. Don't fall in love with the world. Right? Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that doesn't come from the Father. It doesn't have its origins in God. And it will not last, right? The world and its desires will pass away. 
Whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's a scary passage. You think, how does Israel, okay, how do they, you know, I mean, some time has elapsed between chapter 7 and 8, right? I mean, chapter 7 ends with a summary of, hey, here, here, here was Samuel's practice. He made, you know, he would make a loop around Israel and always go back to see, you know, his family home there in Ramah, uh, and, and, and they had peace. But, I mean, there's not, I mean, what is there, 40 years? 30 years? Between God rescuing them, having lost the ark, right? they took the ark, as Jono talked about, into battle, thinking it's their lucky charm. Didn't work for them. They lost the ark. God took over the battle, dismantled Dagon, sent the ark back to them. They're getting together, confessing their sins. The Philistines come to battle, and God fights the battle for them. They don't even do anything. God rescuing them. But then they're turning around, the next chapter, and now let's be like the Philistines. What? That's crazy. That's crazy. But for some of us, man, we, we come out of the world and we, we become Christians because we realize the emptiness of the world. We realize that this is true, what, what John is saying, that the world's its desires, they don't last. Sin, yes, pleasurable for a moment, but man, it wears off. It doesn't last. It doesn't deliver. It's a lie. And yet we find ourselves going back to it. It's crazy. We've got to be careful. I think a lot of times, man, we, we watch things we shouldn't watch. We find humorous and entertaining things that are things of the world. We're not meant to love them. We're not meant to have anything to do with them. Things that are shameful, Ephesians 5 says, even to mention. But it says something about our hearts becoming connected. And one of the sobering warnings that, that the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, gives to Timothy is, hey, don't, don't chase after the world. Because many people chase after the world, and, and they shipwreck their faith as a result of that. And he says, Timothy, you have a whole different things you're meant to pursue. Things like righteousness, goodness, faith. Those are things worthy to pursue, not, not the things of this world. But Israel... They begin to turn on God because they want to be like the world. And so many Christians compromise because they have the same desire. John Stott, famous writer, says, uh, The church has a double responsibility in relation to the world around us. On the one hand, we are to live, serve, and witness in the world. On the other hand, we are to avoid becoming contaminated by the world. So we are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. Escapism and conformism are thus both forbidden to us. Now for Israel, they're not, they're not being tempted at the moment uh, with escapism. Some of us are. Some of us not, not reaching out to the world, not trying to help people become Christians. We become essentially monks or nuns, isolated from the world. All right, that's escapism. John, Scott's, John Stott's making the point. Hey, you can't do that. She says, you're in the world, but you're in the world as a light. You're of the world, but you're not meant, you know, you're in the world, but you're not meant to be of the world. Right? But here in our text, Israel is, is struggling with conformism. Taking on the values and the pursuits and the desires of the world. It's not going to end well for them. And they're not going to be able to fulfill their, their, their duty to be a light to the nations. Another great quote by David Platt. Both of those are great books, by the way, Radical and also this one, Counterculture. 
uh, if you feel like you're struggling with this, with this concept, right? He says, in a world where everything revolves around yourself, that's the world we live in, right? Protect yourself, promote yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Jesus says, crucify yourself. Those are two very different ways. And if someone was just to look at your life, would they think it's more like the first part? That you live to protect yourself, promote yourself, comfort yourself, and take care of yourself? Or do they look at your life and think, man, that person lives putting putting to death self, denying self, living selflessly? Very, very different ways, right? But Israel begins to forsake God because they begin to follow the world. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow drift, guys. It doesn't happen immediately. It's time. Decades, probably. We've got to be careful. Think we never forsake God, but you know, little little by little. Third and lastly, in our text here, we see, you know, that they their forgetfulness. Right? I'm gonna underline there in verse verse 20 what they say, right? They want a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And I touched on that earlier, you know. If you, you guys ever watched the Bible project, they do kind of cool, like overarching summaries of, of, of books of the Bible. And this is a screenshot from their one on, on 1 Samuel uh, in those chapters 4 to 7, right? Uh, the, the Israelites, they go out and they try to fight their battle and they lose the ark, right? And they lose, all right? That's the chapter with all the death in it we looked at, all right? Uh, not a positive, not a positive uh, pursuit, right? But then God takes up the fight, takes, at, takes out Dagon, uh, sends plagues on the Philistines to the point that they, they return the ark. Like I said, you know, John covered the fact that, that Samuel, in some sense, reverses everything Saul did, but Samuel's not even out, or sorry, Eli did, but Samuel's not even out fighting, right? I mean, literally, they're getting together in chapter 7, uh, you know, um, yeah, 6 and 7, they're, they're getting together, you know, and basically having a solemn assembly there in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, where they're getting together and confessing their sins and praying, and God is conquering the Philistines, God is dealing with, with, with the, the, the nations around them that are trying to oppress them. God is fighting for them. And yet here in chapter 8, what are they saying? Who's going to fight our battles? They've forgotten what God had done one chapter before. And so much, I mean, so much of the Bible, I mean, you read Deuteronomy, which is literally a retelling of the law. The, and over and over and over in Deuteronomy is this phrase, right? Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Be careful that you do not forget. Be careful, don't forget. Be careful, don't forget. Because God knows what's going to happen. They're going to enter the land and life is going to be good and they're going to forget what God had done. They're going to forget how God saved them. Later on in the New Testament, (coughs) Peter's going to write to Christians who are becoming unproductive and ineffective in their faith and he says that the root cause is that they have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their past sins. We forget. We end up in the world, becoming more like the world, because we forget how empty the world is. We forget that we were slaves. Right? We end up faithless and hopeless because we forget how God rescues us and how he's rescued us time and time again in our lives. You know, and, and again, Deuteronomy over and over, Deuteronomy 4, you don't have to turn there, 9 to 10, he says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so you don't forget the things your eyes have seen. Or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. 
Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. He's saying, look, things you've seen with your own eyes, we have the ability to forget. I mean, a lot of you, everyone has stories here, guys. Everyone has stories. The situations and mess you'd gotten yourself into and the low point that you'd brought yourself to and how God rescued you from that. Not because you were super intelligent, you were, you were a moron, just like the rest of us. Not because you were super righteous, you, you were wicked, just like the rest of us. But God in his faithfulness, man, he rescued you. And he saved you. Not because of the righteous things you had done. Because you weren't righteous. There was nothing about your life that was righteous. And yet we forget. Just like they forget. And we begin to drift, toward, drift further and further from God. And Timothy Keller, in one of his books, has a famous quote of this irony that happens in Christianity, right? Where we, we believe our doubts and we doubt our beliefs. And we should do the opposite, right? We believe our doubts, right? And we doubt our beliefs, right? How, that, how that's backwards, right? But, but we do the same thing with our memories. We remember what we should forget, and then we forget what we should remember. And I don't know. There's a lot of people that attribute that quote to various people, right? But that's what we do, right? We remember what we should forget, and we forget what we should remember. We remember, you know, each other's past sins. Especially our spouses. We keep records of wrongs. When we, man, forgiveness, we should, we should forget in a sense. But then we forget the things God does. And has done in our lives. Man, we should remember them. Where he literally, I mean, he gives us communion week in and week out, like Franz was saying, to try to hammer into us, remember what Jesus has done. Don't forget this. He takes the two most basic staples of their diet, bread and wine, right? They hadn't figured out how to stop it, you know, grape juice from becoming wine, right? So, amen, back then that was all you had as a choice, unless you wanted to risk it with water, Right? That's why Paul tells Timothy, stop drinking so much water, drink more wine because it's safer, right? You know, but God takes the two staples of their diet and connects it to the cross to try to hammer into their heads. Don't forget what Jesus has done. Don't forget it. Because as soon as you forget it, what do you end up? You end up drifting. You end up forsaking God. Your heart ends up drifting further and further away from God and your love for God grows colder and colder. You know, you ask the question, why, why did Israel forsake God? There's a lot of reasons. Fear and failure took grips in their heart. They began to follow the world, and they began to forget. You know, and then why is that folly? Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? But, 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 but one, you know, is, is the utter faithfulness of the Father. You know, when I was reading this, this text over and over on a holiday, you know, I, I couldn't get away from verse 8. You know, it says there in verse 8, you know, as God's talking with Samuel, Telling them it's not you, it's me. And he says, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. There's a lot of different, you know, chronologies of the Old Testament. But, I mean, all of them put it roughly from the time of Moses to the time of Samuel at 400 years. Think about that for a second. 400 years of a relationship that continually forsakes you. 
continually abandons you, continually turns you know, their back on you and gives their heart to, to someone else when you've given them every reason for them to give their heart to you. I mean, most of us won't tolerate that for four months in reality. Four years, okay, you're, you're, a, you're a hero, right? Forty years, you're a saint, okay? Four hundred? Four hundred years? And yet, what, God, what is God still doing? He's still there, trying to work with them. And they want a king like the other king? Okay, we'll give that to you. You want a king like the other nations? You can have that. And they get that insult, right? And there's, there's some funny wordplay on the whole idea, right? Because what's the next chapter? What's Saul doing, you guys know? He's out looking for donkeys. Which, what are donkeys kind of like known for? Kind of a stubborn, right? You know? And, and God says, okay, I, that, he'll be your shepherd, guy who has spent his time trying to be a shepherd to a bunch of donkeys. Because that's kind of how Israel is. And that's kind of how we are too, by the way. But yet, what is God doing? He's still working with them. He's still seeking them. He's still, he's still pursuing them. He's still engaging. He's still making effort. He's still trying to you know, have a relationship with them. He's still trying to walk with them. He hasn't quit. He hasn't given up, and he won't. He's faithful. That's the that's God we worship. That's really good news. So maybe you've had a year where, man, you've acted more like a donkey than a person. That's good news. Because you know what? God is still, he's still, he's still faithful. He's still pursuing. You know, and then secondly is the idea of, of the future king that's to come. Right? He asks them for a king like the nations, and that's what he gives them in Saul. Saul is physically impressive, but morally flawed. Right? It'll be a train wreck, right? Right from the beginning, there's lots of hints of just his, his utter lack of integrity and honesty. Right? His inability to obey simple instructions and carry out simple tasks from God. His, his continual propensity to be self-deceived. To not see what is obvious that everyone else sees. He'll blame shift and blame other people. He'll do outrageous things. He'll, he'll, make, he'll make grand statements and then not follow those grand statements. He's a king just like the other nations. And then God gives him another king. And David's a man after God's own heart. But even David, that great king, is what kind of king? He's a flawed king. <laughs> I mean, him and, you know, you look at the, the character, uh, you know, I don't know what you call them, character, the, the rise and fall of the characters, right? Saul and David are, are roughly the same. Roughly the same. But David at least begins to be, you know, kind of this ideal king. But even in David's Psalms, there's this idea there's another king that's going to come. And that future king is going to be flawless, unlike all these flawed kings. And we know that that king is Jesus. They're asking for a king like the nations. And even as Pilate and Jesus have a little chat about who's a king, Pilate doesn't get the kind of king that Jesus is. Right? He's like, you're a king, right? And he's like, well, I'm a king, yes, but not, not of this world, not like the world. Because Pilate's like, well, if you're a king, where are your people fighting for you? Because kings, do, what do they do? Just like what Samuel tells the people he's going to do, right? Take, you know, uh, take from others to, to elevate self and protect self. Whereas Jesus 
doesn't protect self for the good of others. The opposite kind of king. And, and, and man, why is it folly to, to forsake God? Man, his faithfulness is unmatched. And he is the fulfillment of the future king that, man, we long for. Because we do have fear, right? And we do look at failures around us in our own lives and others. And, man, we want security. Right? And, and God is going to give them a king in Jesus. Right? And that, that's got to motivate us to cling to him. It's got to motivate us to hold fast to him. Amen? And so as we leave today, I encourage you to think about those things. Please don't leave here today smugly thinking I will never be like the Israelites. No, no, fear and failure can do that. Very easily it can creep in our heart. Following the world, the pressure to conform to the world is is relentless. Forgetting what God has done, man, that's common. But we've got to cling to God. Why? Because he is faithful beyond our, our wildest expectations. And he's given us a future king in Jesus that has no flaws, right? Can intercede for us always before the Father. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand together and sing one final song. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you. We thank you, as, you know, as we always do, and we consider the Old Testament. Just, you know, the warnings, obviously, that are there, God. To, to see your people forsaking you and turning from you, God, is, is a sobering reminder that we can do the same, Father. We pray you help us, God. Help us to learn from those who have come before us, Father. To learn to not allow fear or failure or the pressures of the world or you know, even our own lack of, of uh, cognitive ability to remember. Help none of those things, God, to, to get in the way of us clinging to you, Father. Help us to always remember just the depth of your faithfulness, Father, of what you've done and how you'll continue to, to walk with us, God. We we thank you that you are a God that, you know, is patient and tolerant uh, beyond what we could ever deserve or, or merit in any way, God. That you pour out grace and mercy, Father, on us all in, in, a, in, a, in a measure that, that, that is beyond our understanding at times, God. And we pray that you help us, God, to, to cling to you as our king, to allow you to reign in our lives and have control, Father. Help us, God. For all of us, God, that, that, that have been baptized into you, that, that have stood at the waters and declare you, Lord, God, help us to live our lives in a way that reflect that commitment, God, and to never forsake you, Father. Be with us in this, in this pursuit and in this journey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.